Okay, well, my name is Daniel. I am the lead pastor here. For those who may not know me, we are on the back end of a sermon series on the book of Hebrews um, uh, leading up to Easter. Uh, Easter week is coming up. Uh, by next week, we'll have a little invites for you. We're going to have um, for our Easter week, you know, beginning Palm Sunday next to uh, a communion Thursday as we remember the, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. We're going to have a good Friday service, what we call a darkening service, a tenebrae service that um, kind of progressively throughout the night, um, everything goes dark leading up to the moment of Christ's death where we exit the sanctuary in just darkness and in silence. It's a very, very powerful service. If you guys missed it last year, please don't miss it this year. And then, of course, um, we'll have fasting and prayer on Saturday leading up to our big celebration service on Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday. That's coming up in like just a few weeks, which is crazy. That's wild. But it's coming up really soon. So I ask you guys to be praying about friends and family to consider, um, you know, inviting out because Jesus is still good news. We want people to hear all about him. And speaking of Jesus, that's what we're talking about again this morning, like we do every week. So Hebrews chapter 12, Um, um, if you want to flip there in the Red Pew Bibles, um, that will be on page 1193, on the back end of your New Testament. Um, Anybody like... uh, like sports racing, I mean like foot racing, you know, not like car racing. I'm from Georgia, so you have to, you know, um, it, it, racing, anybody, like sports, anybody? Bill, you raced, like you did a lot of marathons and stuff, right? Today is all kind of using that metaphor throughout the entire chapter. Uh, the, the author, he's using like the racing metaphor, the sports kind of metaphor for a lot of things, especially for, um, for endurance. Um, I did some sports in my life. Uh, hence the past tense, I did it and I failed at all of it. Um, so I didn't do it for very long. Um, I tried. But really, this whole chapter is kind of about endurance. All right? It's about endurance. And again, he uses that metaphor to do it. I, I came across an incredible story of endurance. I didn't even know this happened. Um, there was three men. Uh, I think uh, Kevin Lynn, Ray Zahab, and Charlie Engel. Uh, I think one was American, one was uh, Japanese. Uh, or, or maybe it was two Americans and one Japanese. But um, th- over the course of 111 days in 2006, these men ran 4,300 miles. They crossed the Sahara Desert on foot. There's a picture of these guys behind me. You can, there's all documentary about it. Um, it's quite the story. Like I just kind of was looking up like, what are some incredible stories of endurance? That's one of them, right? <laughs> Anybody want to volunteer for you know, for something like that, right? Crossing the, the Sahara Desert, 111 days, 4,300 miles. They survived and they made it. It's an incredible story. But in a way today, we're going to be looking like as if life was kind of like this jog to the Sahara Desert. And what kind of endurance that is needed to kind of push through and to survive throughout life. So with events like this, is what kind of is working in the background noise of our passage this morning, there's a clear starting point to things like this, to races, to, you know, a test of endurance like this where you're on foot going. There's a, there's a starting point. There's the, the middle journey, which is the, the hard part. That's the, the, the long suffering going up to the end, the actual end point, because there is a clear starting, middle, and a 
conclusion to this. Like they didn't start running in 2006 and be like, let's just kind of run forever and just never stop, right? Like, no, like we don't, marathons don't work that way, right? You, you don't just run forever. You, you, there's a stopping point, right? Um, th- they had a clear ending in mind. They knew kind of, you know, perhaps the highlights, the easier parts are not easy, but the, the beginning's easy, you know. There's that relief when the end comes. But no one, like, looks forward to the middle part, right? No one looks forward to that middle, long-suffering part, the part where, you know, I mean, I, I think I ran, like, a 3K and almost died about, I don't know, six years ago. And um, in my defense, one of, the, one of the miles was, like, on the beach. So we were running in the beach for a mile. That's hard, right? Is that a little pity for me, maybe? And so, you know, you're running, and you're like, I, I, I think I'm done. Like, I'm just going to walk away. Like, there's that, that middle part. You know, you have to kind of like battle in your own mind. It's more of a mental game as your physical exertion keeps going and going and going, but you keep thinking of that finish line, right? But within this, there's an interesting question we're going to surface this morning that, that kind of comes up with this question of endurance, right? Because if we're honest, if we're followers of Jesus this morning, one of the questions are like, well, why the endurance part? Why the hardship anyway? Like, isn't God a good God? Like, why do we have to go through something that requires endurance on our end, right? Why can't our jog in life be like, you know, Florida in the cool springtime air, you know? Like, when I run in my neighborhood, um, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's cool, and there's no desert snakes out to bite my ankles. Like, there's no hot burning sand. Like, you know what I mean? Like, wh- why can't life just kind of be, like, a little bit easier as we kind of jog along? Like, why does it have to feel like that we sometimes have to jog through the Sahara Desert in our lives, right? And so we're going to look at this today. Um, and Jesus, of course, remains as a centerpiece um, of our verses. So last week, um, we, we, we heard a lot about the, the stories of faith, which if you missed um, the, the really epic reading that Shelley gave, um, sorry, that's what you get for not going to church. So um, you missed it last week. So it wasn't seriously like the spirit fell. It was wild. So, but we heard about all of those stories. Okay. That's just, that's just what we read last week. So beginning in verse one, when we see therefore, good Bible readers, when you see the word therefore, you say, what is therefore, therefore. See how that works? So read the previous chapter. By faith, all these people did this amazing things based off of God's promises, and they endured through such victorious events, but also incredible sufferings because they truly believed that God's promises were real, and they were coming. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So there's the racing metaphor, the running metaphor. These ancient peoples in Rome, they were obsessed with sports. I mean, like, absolutely. We're pretty obsessed in America, but I don't know. Like, there was a weird obsession they had. I read it really humorous as I was researching this. Um, In in ancient Greek, a little before Rome, um, a major Greek, Greek city was getting invaded, okay? But this city was actually hosting the Olympic Games. Like, this is real barbarians invading your city and they're like oh, all of our army guys are like in the sports in the olympics so we're all there so let's just like finish the olympic games first and then we'll deal with the invasion thing that's a true story 
But that's wild. These people were obsessed with sports. But all to say, when he uses this metaphor, like everybody in the audience would have known, you know, oh yeah, racing, you know, the foot racing. This is what everybody watched, right? They've been very familiar with this, this metaphor that he uses throughout this chapter. All the witnesses in chapter 11 are those who experience the life of faith. And he says, there are witnesses, but if you, if you look at the racing metaphor, really, um, it's almost like they're the, they're the spectators watching us race now. They're kind of in the stands, and we're now on the track running, but a little more than that, though. Um, they're not just on the, you know, uh, uh, the stands watching us do our race. Like They're veterans. They've been there. You know, they remember those years when they were on the track. But even more so, you know, it's always encouraging when you're doing something like that to know there's somebody like around that has kind of did what you did and survived it. And like, okay, so there's, there's hope. That's encouraging. But even more interestingly enough, we saw this in the previous chapter, the race they're running, in a way, like we're kind of still running the same exact race. Like we picked up the baton that they were chasing with, they were running with, and we grabbed it, and now we're bringing it forward, which is the reality and truth of God's promises and that we know now that we're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the race that these great witnesses were looking forward to has been made manifest in Jesus Christ, and we pick up that baton and we're still running with the good news and the hope that God's promises still are ringing true and are real that he will come back and bring the fullness of his salvation here. We're still running that race. And these witnesses, we're picking up their race. We're picking up their baton and they're watching in the stands as we go. Now he says we need to throw off everything that hinders. Um, this is why athletes, you know, like they just... You know, like my, my children do swimming, you know, every summer, and they have those caps that make them look, you know, um, I don't know. See, this is why I'm not a sports person. Whatever they're called, swimmer's caps? Is that right, Abel? He doesn't know either. Okay. Swimmer's cap. And like, you know, the idea is it pushes the hair down, you know, so you're like more, I guess, aerodynamic, you know, like you're trying to get rid of everything that might entangle you so you can be as fast as possible. He's saying, you know, know, this is why bicyclists wear the lightest clothing and those bicycles weigh like, you know, two pounds, you know, like get rid of everything that might entangle you so you can go as fast as you can in the race. And he says, you must get rid of everything that entangles you. And he says, that is called sin, that it can entangle you in this race. You remember um, those awful tricks when you were a kid that you were in school and, you know, you were, you know, I remember I fell asleep once in class, which was um, unfortunately all the time. And I remember somebody like tied my shoes under my desk, my, my together, you know, untied them and tied them. So I get up and of course I fall down and everybody's bursting out laughing, right? That's kind of like the idea here. Like I got entangled. And boom, I fell right then. Like sin truly does bring us into a tangle. And it's hard just to say this. This is an entire sermon to talk about this very topic, right? But I'll just give you a visual. These are, the next picture is um, the woods in the back of my house, just a few minutes down the street from here. There's my son, Nathaniel, climbing one of the trees. Just look at the surrounding like vines. See all that junk? It's everywhere in my woods. It's called an oriental vine. It's invasive. It's from um, the Asian continent, I think China, Japan, and it's not from America, and it's killing everything in my woods. Like day by day, I'm back there with a machete just like chopping this stuff off to try to rescue the trees, 
right? It's tangling everything up. It chokes everything out. The sun, they can't even receive the sun anymore. And there's some of the trees, they're like as tall as a ceiling in my woods that are just completely covered in vines all the way to the top and eventually are just going to fall right over. It's a great visual of what sin does. Like you can't run through my woods, right? You will just get tangled up in briars and vines immediately. But those vines didn't just show up like overnight. They didn't just come up overnight. Year after year of neglect, of just complete neglect, these things eventually consumed the woods, choking out the life of these trees. It'd be like, you know, you trying to do a marathon with a big puffy winter jacket, you know, and baggy jeans, you know. It's going to slow you down and entangle you. Now, there's so many lists of sins, but I'd be remiss to not summarize just one of the more famous kind of lists of sins in Galatians 5. These are the acts of the flesh, as Paul calls them, which is just really references saying, you know, these are acts that belong to this world and not those of heaven, right? He says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual, immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, Witchcraft, or some translations probably say like sorcery, uh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This stuff is so tricky because he says, throw off the sins that so easily entangle us. Like, um, sometimes just learning about the sin that's present in your own heart can be uh, hard because it's so deep. Like I heard a story once about a guy, uh, I think he was a, he was a pastor and um, he had an offense with somebody in his congregation that he felt like needed public repentance, right? Repentance meaning he wanted to confess it, that um, he sinned against somebody in his congregation. And so um, he, he did that. He publicly repented, okay, about his sin against this person in his congregation. A few days later, he really recognized in his own motivations, he said, you know, like, I think I did that just so people might look at me as if like, wow, that guy is like, he's really holy and really sincere. Look at him. He's like, I don't think I actually forgave this guy. I just wanted to look like I did. <laughs> and so the next Sunday, he, he's like in sorrow over that. So the next Sunday, he says, I'm here again to repent, but this time I'm repenting of my repentance. And it's kind of funny, right? But like, seriously though, it's so deep. Like your motivations can be the hotbed of so much sin and callousness and evil even in our own hearts, right? That we're wrestling with at all times. And it's so hard to even understand just how, how, how deep these things go in our life. And he says we always have to be in the process of trying to throw these things off in this race of endurance as we chase after Jesus Christ. Verse 2 gives us, as, in our, as we're running, where are our eyes focused? Usually if you're running a marathon and you can see the end in sight, that's where your eyes are focused. In verse 2, it is let our eyes, uh, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's that little thin tape that we're going to cross over, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the beginning of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith and he is the one who brings completion to our faith. 
And this race to finish line is not that little thin white piece of paper that she kind of burst over. It is being before Jesus Christ himself where we see him on that day we shall become like him. And it is the spectators and the witnesses and the veterans and the stands that are there cheering us on, but our focus is not on those around us. Our ultimate focus are not on the people around us. It is in Jesus Christ himself that preserves us, right, from having to, in this race of endurance, acting like, you know, we, how do I look in front of my fellow peers? Like, how are, how's my reputation in front of the people around me as I live out this whole Christian life? Like, no, 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 those, that, that's not the end goal is to have, you know, people think highly of you. The end goal is to be like Jesus, is to experience life as he experienced life. And that is what we are chasing after. The spectators are not the goal. Jesus Christ is the goal. And it says that, you know, Jesus is our focus. He had to endure that long season two of that, that middle part of the race as he is going. He had to endure himself as our example. What did he endure? Well, number one, it says that, you know, the, the endurance that he faced, he did with joy. See that? For the joy set before him endured the cross. He understood the finish line of his endurance as one of, one of the greatest joys, the greatest joy that is available, and that is what caused him to endure. Now, the cross was not the object of his joy. That was just a stepping, to, a stepping stone towards the finality of what he was there to accomplish. But the, what that is, we'll see in a minute, which was, you know, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We'll see that in a minute. But his joy, uh, it was beyond the cross, but it caused him when he saw the cross, he despised the shame of it. He's like, I don't care about the shame of it. And it's hard. So let me break that down, what that phrase means, because you and I are accustomed to what these early century Christians, first century Christians would have been accustomed to. Um, crucifixion was done publicly, like in the downtown square of major cities or like a really, you know, busy highways. The Romans would hang people on crosses. They would have been naked. They would have been completely bloodied with their hands and their feet nailed to a tree, usually with signs above them you know, kind of in mockery or signs of warning, saying, do not buck up against the Romans or this could be you. And it was really reserved for, I mean, the lowest, like the reputation of people on the cross. It was like the lowest of the low in society, the basest, the most villainous, the most, um, I mean, ancient writings scarcely even talked about it because crucifixion itself is so horrible. The longest ancient accounts of crucifixion we have is actually in the New Testament. Uh, you can read Martin Hengel's book, Crucifixion, that kind of describes the reputation of all of this. And that's what our Lord embraced. He allowed himself to be subject to such shame. And a little defense of Christianity here, you know, if, if, if there's a religion to make up, it would most definitely not be made up with the guy who died on the cross. Because in the first century, that would have been the most ridiculous message. Like, you mean the guy you're worshiping? Was one of those naked, bloodied people that rebelled against Rome, like on the public square on the cross next to like the other murderers and thieves? Like you're worshiping one of those people? Like this is a stupid message. What are you talking about? You would have invented a whole different message, all right, if you want to make up a story. But it's true. And Jesus didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about the shame attached to it. He knew that he must die for the sins of the world. And with joy, he endured it. 
With joy, he endures some of the most uh, horrible pain and suffering one could conceive of. But the cross was not the finish line. His joy was beyond the cross. Um, he, he knew what lied behind it. The joy that lay um, before him to actually, you know, uh, conquer death, come out of the grave, ascend back to heaven, actually be seated at God's right hand as king and lord in authority and in power. And that was the fulfillment of God's promises. And now at the right hand of God, he, he speaks to us through his spirit. He intercedes for us. He acts on our behalf. He is, he is like Pastor Jesus up there caring for us and, and working alongside of us through his spirit and all of his glory. When the Bible talks about the glory of Jesus, that is his glory. No one has the seat of honor at God's right hand except for Jesus Christ. That is his glory, and that was his joy that he endured everything in order to sit. And that is for us, because now, through Christ, Paul even says that we are even seated with him because we are united with him. Now, because Christ is there, we, God's children, has access to God himself. This is the work of Christ that we have, and it says that he endured everything he needed to endure to get there. Romans 5 picks up on these topics, picks up on this. This is a verse behind me. Just listen to how Paul kind of works this out, okay? He says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, listen. Through him have all, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Listen. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, just like Jesus did. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we endure, we don't have a Savior who says, well, I don't know what it's like to endure. He says, I know what it's like to endure, clinging to God's promises. I've seen the other side push forward. God is with you. And moving on to verse 3. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Unlike Jesus, not yet had their struggles, these early Christians led to actually shedding their blood. But they had experience being thrown in prison, having their houses plundered by the Romans because they worshiped Jesus. There was, they definitely had some great immense suffering, but he says, oh, you know, but you haven't like shed your blood yet for him. Like you have some ways to go. That's a hard word for us in America because like, you know, we aren't shedding our blood for Jesus in America. You know, there's dozens of nations. I know Pastor Jim always is kind of keeping track of this and shares a lot of stories with the staff just about some of the realities of brothers and sisters in Christ now, like last week, yesterday, who indeed are dying because of their profession in Christ. Voice of the Martyrs is a great resource to put that in front of you so you know that that's a real thing like today. More people are dying for their faith today than ever before in, in history. So, um, 
you need to be aware of that, but this is so hard for us to read this as Americans because we have such freedom here to worship Christ without any danger of shedding, or very few have had to share their blood, uh, shed their blood in America for Jesus. But there's something we can't identify with. Jesus endured opposition from sinful men. From sin itself, through other people, Jesus himself endured opposition. Ultimately, sin was the cause of that, even though he was dying even for those who were sinning against him. Um, he, he endured. Now, we get in verse 5, as we talk about this, this, this sin, this, this endurance, this hardship, we're going to go back to that race and sports metaphor for the next, I don't know, uh, uh, seven or eight verses or so. Beginning in verse 5, it says, and have you forgotten the word of encouragement? So I'm about to read an encouraging word for you, okay? Have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? In the, in the Greek word, it means sons and daughters. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Be encouraged, church. It's kind of a joke, but like it's not encouraging, but it's supposed to be. And you might say, like, well, that's, that's kind of a hard pill of encouragement to swallow, you know? Like, that's not incredibly an exciting verse. We don't hear a lot of, you know, people want to write books and talk about that, you know? It doesn't really make it on the New York Times bestseller. Be encouraged. The Lord may, you know, cause difficult things to happen in your life. Uh, but it, be encouraged. It just means that you're one of his children. Now, again, I'm not a big sports guy. Later, um... Uh, in verse 11, um, we're going to see uh, this process of, of the Lord's discipline and this endurance process. There's a word used uh, for trained that is the word that we get of the word gymnasium, gym, where you like train, you know, for, for sports, weight training, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, the, in verse 11, we'll read that later, the word trained is there. So we know that this is this discipline that the Lord brings in our life is not random. It does not come out of nowhere. It is one of training. This is like coach Jesus, but he's really father Jesus, right? These metaphors kind of go hand in hand in this, and he is helping to train us up. Now, if you are a father or a mother and um, you discipline your children, there's a reason behind it. And if you're a righteous father, a righteous mother, right, you, you want the good of your children. So discipline is given, right? Abuse happens when there's, you know, harm brought for no reason other than the anger or fits of rage of an outburst of a parent, right? That is an abusive parent when, when things like that occur. Now, if you're seeking the good of your child, discipline has a purpose behind it. And that's always a challenge. Um, as parents to say, am I exercising discipline on my children right now because I'm angry and I want this to stop? Or am I seeking the good of them through this word? Am I aiming at their heart or just aiming at their actions, right? Because I can scream stop as loud as I want for one of my kids to stop doing something. But am I going to get on my knees and look in his eyes and try to look at his heart, you know, and bring discipline there? And that's what God does for us. There's a purpose behind it. Now, I do remember playing football in junior high and briefly in high school. And those practices, I mean, they were punishing, right? I just remember like endless hours of burpees, right? Anybody love burpees? No, who likes burpees, right? Um, horrible, just endless hours. I remember they used to make us run up the stadium steps, you know, down by the football field. It was the best in the Georgia heat, you know, just running up and down stairs, 
backwards just all the time, up and down, up and down. Now, in that situation, you can look at your coach and say, like, why are you punishing us? You're not, you don't really mean he's punishing you. He's not, like, mad at you, you know, saying, well, I'm doing this just because I like to see you be punished. Like, no, there's, there's training, right? There's a game coming up, and you have to be trained for this game. It was preparation to grow us into better athletes. It did not work for me, but it worked for a lot of the other ones, right? I never got any better. But as much as you didn't like doing that, right, um, you, you knew the motivations behind it. And so we must understand that God, when he brings discipline to us, he's our father, and we have to explore this a little more. Verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you then are illegitimate children and not true sons. Right? So by the way, remember, you know, this is encouraging. It's supposed to be in a word of encouragement for us. Going through hardships in life means that you're being treated like family okay? You're being treated like family. He's being a good father. He's not handing us life on a silver platter. Life isn't easy or difficulties in all stages of life, but, we can't, but he, he doesn't shield us from, from pain in this broken world. Now, I want to just slow down here, okay? Because I can say these things and just kind of, uh, in a cliche almost way, just state these realities and um, kind of move on. And that's the danger of this conversation. This can become like a Christian cliche. Um, you know, oh, you know, God has good in this for you. So just, you know, smile, you know. Um, I remember as a kid, one of my best friends growing up, um, he died very young. And um, we were at the funeral, and many Christians were there. And painfully, they kept going to the family just saying like, oh, God has something good. I remember hearing this. And, and God has some, something good out of this. And the father snapped. And he said, if that's all you have to say, leave. I am suffering. And it was like a jarring moment. Like we all heard him snap. And I think he, it was good that he did, you know. Um, to come to the awareness that God brings good out of our pain, that's like one of the finish line things. It, it takes often a very long time to work that out in our life. And we can't rush that process. It doesn't reduce the fact that it's true. Like it doesn't negate the fact that that is a true statement. But oftentimes we need the space to truly wrestle with it because these kind of verses can be like a coping mechanism to not actually deal with your own pain. Oh, well, God has something good out of this. So I'm just going to like not talk about it and not look at it and just ignore it. That's not what the scripture teaches, right? You need to face that pain and say, Lord, where are you in this? I mean, psalm after psalm after psalm says, God, where are you? I don't know where you are. It's like you've abandoned me. It's like you don't even love me. Has your steadfast love ceased forever? Psalm 77 says this. We need to be okay as we're going through hardship, learning to voice those things and actually wrestling with God. I'm going to tell you a story from the Old Testament from a guy named Joseph, okay? And just consider his story, okay? He had a whole bunch of brothers. He was second to the youngest. Now he had drawn some jealousy from his brothers. Anybody that has siblings knows there, just, there can be some little rivalries and things that happens inside of a group of children. That's normal, but this got a little out of hand when his brothers, due to their jealousy, conspired to actually kill him. It didn't just talk about it, but like 
like, began following through with their plan. They found a well. They threw him at the bottom of a well. And as he's down there, they were, like, having lunch, figuring out, like, how do we kill this kid? What do we do? And then a, a, a wagon comes up with slave traders from Egypt, and they say, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Like, let's be merciful. Let's just sell him off to slavery. Let's just do that instead. And so there's Joseph, who's probably around 17, 16 years old, okay, gets, gets hoisted up from this well and is then sold off. His brothers receive a handful of silver, and his brother is now gone in slavery, all because of a little jealousy rivalry that was happening, right? And then Joseph, you know, through slavery, he winds up getting, you know, this, this, this blessing and, and befriends a hierarchy in, in Rome. Uh, somebody, one of the higher-ups, becomes kind of manager of his house. And then um, choosing the right thing and the process of, of, of choosing to not sleep with this man's wife who was pursuing him to do so, she then accuses him of rape, which was not true. It was a lie. And then he's thrown in jail for something he didn't even do. Now, if you're Joseph, okay, and you're sitting in jail, at that point, you're probably thinking, like, I'm done here. Like, I haven't done anything wrong. Like, I don't know, like, I'm done with this whole, like, endurance thing, right? But then a dramatic turn of events happen. He's in jail for years. He interprets dreams for Pharaoh. Suddenly, he's thrust into one of the highest positions in all of Egypt. It's one of the best storytelling, you know, uh, of ancient, you know, history. Just, I love reading the story of Joseph. And he's thrust into this position because this dream Pharaoh had was about this famine that was going to come. And, and Joseph was hired to help preserve all of Egypt from this famine that was coming up. And so suddenly, he finds himself like second in charge of Egypt. And guess who shows up looking for food? His brothers. Now, Joseph is all Egypt out, you know, and looks like an Egyptian, so they don't even recognize him, but you can read the story for yourself. But he, he comes to the realization, he's like, wait a minute. Like, I have the ability to sustain my family. If those things didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. And God's promises were given to my family of a great nation that's going to come through the promised line of his grandfather Isaac, his great-grandfather Jacob, or uh, uh, Abraham, through his father Jacob. And if he wasn't in that position, then his own family would not have, they would have starved to death. And again, this was over 15 years or so of him in slavery and in jail. It's a long time. Until the very end of the book, we come to the conclusion of all of Genesis, 15 verse, chapter 50, verse 20, talking to his brothers. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Now, there's a mystery here that I, nobody can actually fully unpack. Because their actions were legitimately evil. There's no doubting the fact that it came out of evil intentions and motivations. It was from the evil one, no doubt. But the power of God is that he can look at the worst of the most evil actions that take place in this world and in your life. That can happen around you, the loss, the suffering. He can take that and say, I'm going to show that my power is greater than the evil on this earth. I'm going to bring about my good purposes through this evil. And so even as Jesus himself experienced betrayal, 
experienced uh, himself getting tortured and even hung on a cross, he says, I'm going to show my power and that I will overcome this suffering with the resurrection. So why does God allow things to happen? Ultimately, that's something you have to, in faith, learn to accept that you will not know the answer to. But what you can know the answer to is that God has never abandoned you to those things. That there is some greater purpose that is working behind the scenes. You may be aware of it soon. It may take you 15 years later. It may be the darkest place in life to have to get to the point of just embracing that God is still good regardless of what seems to be happening around you. That's the whole point of the book of Job. We can go on and on about that. I want to share a story though. Um, I know I like quote from Lord of the Rings all the time, but whatever, I don't care. I'm a nerd and that's fine. Um, But I'm going to get a little beyond Lord of the Rings because I've done a lot of reading about the author J.R.T. Tolkien himself. And this kind of puts this into pers- some modern-day perspective, right? Uh, there was a battle that took place in World War I on the front lines in France. The British and the French together fighting the Germans called the Battle of the Somme. Um, uh, it was a multi-month battle, one of the largest and bloodiest battles of all of human history. 300,000 dead before it was over. Over a million were injured, missing, or considered casualties. The scope of this battle, it's mind-blowing, just the the hellish nature of what took place in the trenches of the Battle of Somme. And guess who was on the front lines? Tolkien himself. He witnessed some of his best friends literally being just obliterated beside him in the trenches. People that he had done deep, hard life with, just surviving with, just watched them just be blown away next to him. He experienced true hell on earth. Then he himself ended up getting what they called trench fever because there was a lice infestation just taking over everybody in these trenches and it was, it was foul and awful and he had to be sent home. It took him years to recover himself on the brink of death over and over and over again from trench fever. Now fast forward many years and Tolkien is writing this epic story, Lord of the Rings. And there's an important scene where Frodo, who's this ring bearer, and he's, he, he's tasked with getting rid of the ring. But not just getting rid of the ring, which was kind of the, the metaphor of all the power and evil in the world, but he found himself a major player in this major world war, feeling the weight of the horrors of being alive in such a dark season of history. And he was speaking with Gandalf, and he said these important words. He said, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. I can imagine Tolkien writing this, feeling these exact things as he stood in the trench. Explosions happening, death all around. Did he choose to be born in such a time like that? You know? Did he choose to be born in a time in history where the world was literally at war with one another? Do you think he often said, I wish none of this was happening? But what was Gandalf's response to Frodo? He said, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. What Tolkien is trying to draw out is the mystery of God's providence. All the millions who endured World War I, World War II, when the world was in absolute upheaval, millions perishing all around the globe, nobody chose to be born in such times, but that was what they were born into. Do you think any of them wanted to face that? Do you think that when you experience suffering in your life, like, I, 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 I didn't want this. Like, I didn't want this illness. I didn't want this cancer. I didn't want this in my life. I didn't want to lose this person that I loved so much. I didn't want this, Lord. 
Now, sometimes our own suffering is because we've screwed up and we get entangled in our own sin, right? That's a whole different sermon for a different day. But these early Christians just trying to follow Jesus, they're being plundered by the Romans, being thrown in prison like, you're baptized, congratulations, you might be killed soon, so just, you know, be prepared. But God takes all of this suffering and he says, what are you going to let me do with this? You're going to let me produce character and holiness and power within you, give you the power needed to persevere through the, the darkest what this world has to offer, just like Jesus. Will you keep your eyes on Jesus? Will you see that there is joy in the glory that awaits us, that supersedes any suffering on this earth, says Paul in Romans 8? Will you endure the race that is before you? Joseph was given a hard hand in life, and maybe you have too. But friends, take heart because God can overcome. When Jesus was here, he said, take heart. He said, I have overcome the world. Endure, friends. Endure. And remind you, Tolkien took his sufferings and turned it into one of the greatest works of hopeful literature ever written. He can take your sufferings and produce beauty out of them. Endure. As we close here, verses 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more shall we submit to the Father of our spirits and live Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, for those who have been in the gym by it. That's what that word means. Our pain and suffering is the gymnasium in which we learn endurance just like Jesus. Now, the key word in this paragraph, I believe, is that word life. When we submit to these things, we submit to the Father of our spirits, and he says, and live. Now, what does he mean? Like, we're already alive. He's not talking about, you know, this heartbeat life. He's talking about something bigger. He's talking about when Jesus um, stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had just died and he wept and he was angry at death and he sat there just surrounded by other mourners who were weeping alongside of him, their friends and their family. And he looked at them and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's going back and forth into a future life and a present life. He's saying, if you believe in me right now, you can receive life. What is he talking about? You can experience life as it was meant to be within you as it is in heaven. I want to unleash that on the world. I am carving a way to bring the very life of God, the very life that he had to fill you. So just like him, as he saw the cross, he could endure it with joy, knowing the glory that awaited. He said, I want to give you this life. Hebrews 11 says, our fathers, um, when we submit to God and to his work in our life, he says, we will find life. We will truly live. And that is good news, friends, that you can experience life today when you feel like The darkness is around, and it's not possible. This is where verse 12, we're going to end here. He says, therefore, because of all of this, he says, therefore, back to the race metaphor, right? Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. 
that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Imagine the runner, they're in the endurance phase. They're kind of getting, they're trying to get to that finish line and your arms are turning like jello and your knees are, are getting weak. And he says, no, like strengthen yourself. Strengthen yourself. Look to Jesus. He is going to bring you to that finish line so you can experience the joys in life even today. So friends, my prayer for you this morning as we close, I can, um, uh, we're gonna have communion here in just a moment. If you're going through it, if you have gone through it, if there is just pain and suffering now in your life, this is not some like motivational speech to say like, oh, just don't tap out, like keep going. Like it's, no, you, can, you can't keep going. Like you can't. But Jesus can in you. That's the important thing to know. You can't just like, you know, persevere through a trial and difficulty because of your own grit. The whole point is like, no, keep your eyes on Jesus. If that's you this morning, we're going to have a time of, um, of prayer soon after communion where if you want to have your knees strengthened and your, your weak knees, you know, strengthened up so you can stand upright and need to come, maybe repentance of sin, maybe just a prayer of healing over you, a, a prayer for maybe courage to face the darkness and brokenness and suffering in your own life and learn to truly submit it and give it over to God and trust in the promises that there is good and hope that will come out of it. If that is you today, like, please come forward. Like, we, we don't want to have an event here and just get to go home. We want to minister to you. We want to see God minister to you this morning. And so um, let me pray, and Jim's going to come up and lead us in communion. Um, Lord, we, um, we thank you. As Matthew 28 said, as the, some of the last words you said when you were on this earth, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. We grab on to that, Lord, in hope that even when all things seem so bleak around us, Lord, it may even seem that you're missing from around us, Lord, that you haven't, that your good purposes are at work, and that we move forward, Lord. Even if it feels like we're stuck in the Sahara just enduring this just pain, Lord, like, Lord, may we experience your life in the midst of it all. Yes, Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.